Welcome to the LifeGate Podcast. Our vision is changing lives in a changing culture with the unchanging truth. Our prayer is that these weekly messages will inspire you to life change through the principles found in God's Word. Let's join in for this week's message. I'm so excited to have an opportunity to speak with you guys today. This new series that we're embarking on, as Chad said, we're just going to talk about how the different hats that we wear when we are a follower of God and we are active in our church. He's going to talk about uh, the hat of leadership. He's going to talk about uh, the hat of membership. And in a couple of weeks, Amber is going to talk about uh, the hat of mother for all the men out there. And uh, man, that fell flat. I shouldn't have done the joke. It fell flat last service too. That's on me. Anyways, but today I'm going to start off the series with talking about worship. It's something that I'm incredibly passionate about, and I'm so honored that I have an opportunity. I'm grateful to Chad and Amber for entrusting me uh, with the opportunity to lead worship here every week, to lead these amazing people. Aren't these incredible musicians? Can we get up for our worship team? All of them, not just the ones today, all of them. They're incredible. Our media team, our sound team, turn around and look at them. They're so pretty. Nobody ever looks at them. They're just in the back. That's why they do it, so they can be in the back, but I'm bringing attention anyway. Anyways, so as I was preparing for this message, I really feel like God laid a few things on my heart, and I'm really excited to share them with you today. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray, and then we're just going to dive straight in to these points that God has. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you are already here. Because it says where two or more are gathered, you are already here. So we know that you are in our midst, God, that you are moving, that you are active, that you are available, Lord God, to change our lives today. God, I ask that every word that comes from this microphone, Lord God, will be from you and that it will touch hearts. Lord God, in the things that are just from me, Lord God, I ask that they just fall away in Jesus' name. Come and have your way, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. So as we jump in today, we are going to start with Jehoshaphat. Boom. Who's excited about Jehoshaphat? I know you guys, you man, y'all are fronting like you're not excited about Jehoshaphat. So Jehoshaphat, boom, that's what I'm talking about. Jehoshaphat was the fourth king that came after David. David was the first in the Davidic line, then came Jehoshaphat. He was someone who was incredibly, incredibly passionate about the things of God. He wanted his kingdom just to be after the heart of the Father. He wanted to set things in his kingdom to be in constant pursuit of God. And so the other thing that he really was passionate about was unifying and fortifying the uh, country of Israel. See, because Israel was just countries, it was like Judah, Jerusalem, and all these countries that were just in like this province of where Israel was. So he really wanted to fortify them and bring them together. So the way that he began to do that was he sought out one of the kings that was there, and his name was Ahab. Now, Ahab was a selfish king. He was self-serving. He wanted to advance himself, make his name famous in the earth. But at the sake of fortifying his country that he loved, uh, Jehoshaphat went to partner with Ahab. 
And he said, what can we do to make this fortifying union thing happen? And he said, well, why don't you help me go fight this uh, other country over here? And he said, well, why don't we ask God first? Because that's what he was doing. And then so they asked God. God said no. And Jehoshaphat was like, well, I really want to do this unifying thing. I kind of had that on my heart. So they went and they attacked this country. They barely, barely, barely beat this country. They were uh, depleted of all their resources. Their army was really just ravaged uh, by this war, and Ahab died. And so uh, Jehoshaphat went back to the country of Judah, and he said uh, he knew that uh, he had done something that was not right in the eyes of God. And so his heart began to uh, start towards bringing order to the country of Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. So what he did is he set judges in place. He set them in place so that they could have order and justice and uh, just safety in the kingdom. He set priests in place so that they could interpret the word of God and bring that to the forefront of who they were as a country. He brought uh, Levites and worshipers so that they could be in tune with the heart of what God was doing and they could be after the heart of God. He was setting things in order so he could set his kingdom up for success. And that's where we jump in today. We jump in in 2 Chronicles 20. And it said, after this, after he had set everything in order, the Moabites, the Ammonites, with some of the Menunites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom. From the other side of the Dead Sea, alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. What I love about this verse is verse 3 says, alarmed. There's a vast army coming around him. And if there was a vast army coming against me, and that was written about me, he said, and Josh freaked the heck out because there was a vast army coming against him. When I say a vast army, can we put the map on the screen for a second? See, Judah is right here. They are against the Mediterranean Sea, which means their back is against the wall. And then up in the north is Ammon, up in the east is Moab, and in the south is Edom. They are literally surrounded by a vast army. And remember, Their army was just pretty much destroyed in a battle just a short while ago. How many of us feel like that? How many of us feel that we've just been through a battle? We've just gotten things in order. We're going to church. We're taking notes when Pastor Chad is preaching. We are going to the life track. We are getting involved in life groups. We are have our finances in. We're tithing. We're doing everything that we are supposed to do. We have everything in order. And then all of a sudden, there is an army that has come against us. Right when we get everything in order, right when we get ourselves on the right track, we are bombarded on every single side. And see, oftentimes the way we respond in that is not in a place of victory. It is not in a place of knowing uh, what God has to say on the matter. We respond out of fear. Jehoshaphat responded in worship. He brought all the people to him. They fasted. They prayed. And they worshiped. And they sought after God. And there there was a prophet that came to them and he said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. 
Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down to worship before the Lord. They responded with worship. They had an opportunity to say, God, I see what is in front of me. They had an opportunity to say, I'm afraid. They had an opportunity, King Jehoshaphat, to bring up all of his generals and bring a military strategy together and say, how do we defeat this even though we are depleted? But instead, they responded in worship. So they were instructed to go up on this hill. They were on the top of a hill, staring down at this vast army. And as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah. They were defeated. The fear of God came on all of the surrounding kingdoms when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God was given rest on every side. Amen, baby. That's my little girl over there. She's awesome. Uh, So see, God had instructed them to go up on this hill. And instead of sharpening their swords, instead of attacking them in the middle of the night, instead of having this amazing way to go about and defeat the army, they told them to go and stand and worship. Because as we heard earlier from the prophet, the battle is not ours. It is the Lord's. He said, do not be discouraged. Do not be afraid. The battle is not yours. So when they went and stood up on that hill, just because they had the promise, it did not change the reality of what they were looking at. There was still a vast army standing right out in front of them. There was still an army that was ready to consume them, that was ready to defeat them, that was ready to kill them, their families, and take over the land that they loved. Because that's what happens. We have an opportunity to partner with that. We have an opportunity to partner with heaven and partner with that reality that God is setting up for us. To put on this worship hat that says, God, I choose to see what you see instead of see what the world sees. Because God told them that the victory was theirs, that the battle was not theirs, it was his. But instead, they went up. Instead of looking down, instead of feeling defeated, instead of seeing that this army is way too great, they chose to partner with heaven to take on this mentality, this hat of worship, and choose to receive the victory that God had for them. You see, because worship wins the battle. Worship wins the battle. Every time I think about that, every time I think about my reality or the world's reality versus God's reality, I begin to think of my journey to uh, Christ for the nations. When I was 19 years old, I felt like God had just continued to put this call in my life to uh, go into ministry, and so I was going to pursue that calling, and so I went to uh, Christ for the nations in Dallas, Texas. I'm from Virginia Beach, Virginia, and Dallas is a long way. And I had no idea who anybody was, but I just was like, it's time for me to be obedient. It's time for me to follow the call that God has in my life. 
And so the first week that I was there, I'm walking into the place where we have chapel, and my world comes to a stop. It's slow motion. There's like music playing in the background, and there's this beautiful woman that is just walking into our chapel. She's wearing a jean skirt. She has a red blouse on, and I thought, that is why I'm here at this place right there. She is gorgeous. That is to be my wife. And so I went into this place, and I was, had boldness on me, and I said, I'm going to go and tell her, woman, you are to be my wife. But praise God that he has wisdom over ours. <laughs> His ways are higher than our ways. He said, wait, as I was going up to talk to her. Thank you, Jesus. And so I had a lot of opportunities to tell her. I wanted, I wanted to pursue, I wanted to pursue, I wanted to pursue, and God said, wait, every single time. And so I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I went to everything that she was a part of, everything that she was doing. It is not stalking if you're praying about it, okay? Just so you know, if you're praying about it, it's not stalking. Anyways, so the thing about my journey and my time there was that my wife had started a year before I did. And so she was done. She was graduating that spring, and I had to come, I was going to come back for my second year. And so I thought, this is the time. This is the time to profess my love, to let her know she will feel the weight of all my prayers, the love that I've been pining away for for these last nine months, because that's an eternity when you're 19. And I prayed, and I was going with the boldness, and then God said again, wait. And I was frustrated. I went home. My wife is from here in Burleson, Texas. And I was from Virginia Beach. And so I went home, and I was angry. I was angry at God. I said, God, that's not the reality that I want. That is not my reality. If you wanted me to go home and you wanted her to stay home, then why didn't you just tell me no? I'm 19. I can handle the no. But he told me, wait. And so two and a half months went by, and it was time for me to go back to CFNI for the fall. And as I was preparing to go, I felt a strong, strong pull in my heart that said, you need to stay. You need to go back to school, but not now. And so I prayed, and I asked, and I worshiped, and I said, God, what what are you trying to tell me here? And I went to friends that I knew heard from God, and they said, that is absolutely right. You're right on point. That's what God is telling you. And then I went to other people that heard from God and also financially supported me, and they said, that is an attack from Satan. They said, God is a God of completion, and what you're talking about is not of God. And because they heard from God and financially supported me, I did what they said. So I, can, I prepared to go back to CFNI for the fall. And as I was journeying back, my car began to break down one time, then another time, then another time, then another time. And every time that it broke down, it got progressively worse. It ended up costing me an entire semester of school because I did not obey. It was an expensive lesson of obedience. It was very expensive. But anyways, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I'm in, I was in Hope, Arkansas, and not because I had this swelling of faith in this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to listen, I'm going to obey. It's because I literally thought, because my car wrecks and my car repairs were getting progressively worse, I thought that if I did not turn around, God was going to strike my car with a lightning bolt to get me to stop. 
So I turned around in Hope, Arkansas, went back to Virginia, and my car was fine the entire time. The entire time. So I get back on a Friday. I go back to my home church on Sunday. This is a church I've served at, that I've been a part of, my family's been a part of. And I show up, and I sit in my seat. I don't want to explain this to a lot of people, but I'm there, and I just pray, and I worship, and I say, God, this reality doesn't make sense. I don't know why I'm here. I need you to show me what your reality is for my life. And right when I say amen to this prayer, not exaggerating, I hear my name from a row behind me. I turn around, and there was the girl who had the jean skirt, who had the red top. She had said my name. She can tell you in a test, I fell down in my chair because my legs could not support me because I did not believe that this girl from Burleson, Texas, showed up in my church and in my section. It's a big, it was a big church. She ended up in my section sitting right behind me. And when she said my name and I saw her and I fell to my seat, God said, now you can pursue her. See, what would have happened if I just said, God, and I listened to those words that people spoke over me and I partnered with the reality that I saw in front of me. If I'd gone back to Dallas, and I'm not saying God can't bless that, and God doesn't, you know, he's, he's a good God. He's a very good God. But God had the best for me waiting in Virginia. God had this beautiful, amazing, wonderful, creative, talented, 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 talented woman waiting for me. And I've gotten to spend the last 11 years with her and have two incredible children because that's the reality God wanted me to partner with, not the one that I saw, not the one that made sense to my human mind, but the one that was partnering with heaven. Are you guys tracking with me so far? Good. So next we're going to dive into Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas in Acts 16, it says, once... When we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. So Paul is such a hero in the faith for me. He's written half of the New Testament, the road to Damascus, all that stuff. Like he's an incredible, incredible guy. But it took him days. This woman is like chanting behind him, oh, these guys are going to get you saved. And it took him days before he got annoyed. That is hero-level patience right there. Can I just tell you? I have an incredible seven-year-old daughter who's sitting right over there. She's so pretty. And so every day she comes home and she talks. She wants to talk to me. She's such so inquisitive. And she'll say, Daddy, what about this? Daddy, what about this? Daddy, but Daddy, what about this? Daddy, what are you watching? Why is he doing that? Daddy, why is he doing that? And after five minutes of that, I'm like, look it up. It's fine. Just look it up. 
I have five minutes of patience for a girl that I love. Paul had days of patience for someone who was being demon-possessed. It's ridiculous. Paul's amazing. Read about him. Anyways, back to the story. So Paul, he was heading to a house of prayer. And so when he was doing this, this woman came, cast the demon out. And so what then happened was the people who owned her, because she was a slave, brought Paul and Silas to the middle of the town. And they accused them, saying that they were starting riots, that they were causing upheaval in this town because they cast out a demon. So the local government decided that the appropriate response for what they had done was to beat them in the center of the town, then to put them in the center of the prison, which is the worst part of the prison, and to have them shackled to the walls because that's an appropriate response. See, if anybody had the opportunity to not respond in this mindset, this attitude of worship, it's Paul and Silas. They were going to pray. They were going to church. And then on their way to church, they cast out a demon. They were doing what the Great Commission says. Go, therefore, and make disciples, and then preach. That's what they were doing. And then they were met by being beaten and put in prison and chained. But instead of responding in a way that was selfish and like, just really, God, why are you doing this to me? They responded like this. It said that at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. They had an opportunity to respond in fear, to put on a hat, a mindset of fear. But instead of responding to that, they put on this mindset, this hat of worship that said, God, even though we are beaten, even though we are in a prison that is unjust, we are chained. Lord God, we choose to see your reality. We choose to partner with heaven. We choose to worship, which gets us in an attitude where we can link up with what heaven is doing. Because in heaven, there is freedom. In heaven, there is wholeness. In heaven, there is abundance of love. But what they were looking at was chains and shackles and prison. And the moment that they worshiped at midnight, and they're tired. It's midnight. I don't know about you. I'm tired at midnight. I got two kids. I'm too old for midnight. Um, It's midnight, and they start worshiping. And not only did their worship break off their chains and open the doors, it set the people free that were listening to them. Their worship was so in tune with what God had in store for them that it set other people free. The guard of the prison gave his life to Jesus that night because they responded to what heaven had to say about the reality instead of what the world had to say about the reality. See, because worship, when we respond with worship, it breaks off chains. It breaks off chains. I'm going to go next to Israel. Another Israel. We talked about that with Jehoshaphat, but now the people of Israel. They were taken out of captivity from Egypt. It was a whole big thing. You know, plagues. People died. You know, all that stuff. Red Sea. You should read about it. It's great. Um, So they left there, and then God had given them a promised land. 
And when they went up to the promised land, they sent in 12 spies, two of which were Joshua and Caleb that said, the land is flowing with milk and honey. The other 10, nope, there's giants. We shouldn't go there. And so God sent them on a 40-year scavenger hunt in the desert instead. It was not fun. They didn't, it was not a fun scavenger hunt. <laughs> they, they walked around in circles for 40 years. And then so after these 40 years, they came back to Jericho. And Joshua was walking up towards it. And it says, now here, we're going to pick up in Joshua 5, 13. It says, now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to meet him and asked, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are is holy ground. And Joshua did so. So he's finally back. Joshua was one of the people who saw the promised land. He saw milk and honey. He saw past giants. He saw past walls. And he saw the land that God had for them. And so he's ready. It's 40 years. He's ready to go in. And he comes up to an angel of the Lord who's ready. He's like, all right, you're with us. You're for, the, you're for God. And the first thing, the angel responds to him is, stop, pray, worship. Not get with your generals and let's get a plan together because we're with you. Not look for the weak spot on the wall. That's where you should attack. Stop, pray, worship. Because heaven's reality was different than what he was looking at. And so most of you know the story. They marched around Jericho for seven days. And then on the seventh day, they walked around seven times. And then the last time, they lifted up a shout of worship and the walls of Jericho, the walls of their promised land came to the ground. They walked out their obedience day after day after day in the midst of it, not changing and not changing and not changing. Every day they walked around, there was still a huge wall. There was still giants that occupied their land, but it did not change what God had said. They responded in obedience to what God said, even though their reality wasn't changing. Because when we get in this mindset, this hat, we keep coming back to it, this hat of worship, when we get this as our primary focus, we can see and partner with heaven instead of partnering with what the earth says. Because worship tears down walls. It tears down our walls. It breaks off our chains. And it, def- and it wins the battle. But how do we get our worship to a place where it is doing these incredible, incredible things? We first need to know what true worship is. See, true worship is surrender. True worship is sacrifice. True worship is giving value to something that is greater than ourselves. True worship costs something. In the book of Mark, there's a story about a woman who brought her offering. 
Jesus was sitting at the temple, and there was tons of people coming, and they were just giving. They were giving their offering into the, I don't know if they had baskets back then, whatever they were giving it to. They were putting their offering in, and there was a lot of people that they were giving. Some were giving out of religious motives. Some people were doing it out of obligation. Some people were doing it because they could. Some people were doing it because they had a 20 in their wallet. But this woman came, and she had two cents, and it was all that she had. And she placed it in the offering. And in that moment, Jesus spoke up, and he honored her, and he said, this woman has given more than anyone here combined. Why? Because she got it. She got that worship costs something. It doesn't cost us where we're comfortable. It costs us in a place where it means something. In John, there's Mary, who has this bottle of perfume. This bottle of perfume is said to cost a year's salary. A year's salary. That must be some good-smelling Chanel. You know what I'm talking about? Man, a year. That's nuts. She comes in, she breaks it on Jesus' feet. She washes his feet with her tears, and she dries his feet with her hair. And all she's doing this, everyone in the room is saying, this is foolish, this is wasteful. This is not what she should be doing. But then Jesus stopped and he honored her, and he said, she gets it. I am not going to be here forever. She gets it. Worship costs something. You see, our outward worship, our outward expression of worship needs to match the incredible act that God has done on the inside of our hearts. That's what Mary was doing. That's what the widow was doing. They were having this outward expression of what God had done on the inside of their hearts. And Mary did it in spite of people in her face telling her that it was wrong, that it was foolish, that it was wasteful, and it was something that she shouldn't be doing. That was her reality. But then God partnered with her and showed her what heaven looked like, gave her a glimpse of what heaven looked like. He gave her his reality. David is often, one last one, I promise. David is often referred to as a man after God's own heart. But David started as the last born of Jesse. Jesse had a lot of sons, and David was last. And David also a shepherd. We romanticize shepherds in the Christian faith. Shepherds were nasty. They were unclean. They were called lazy. They were called sinners. They were called outcasts. That's what shepherds were. And that's what David was. So much so that when Samuel came to Jesse and said, I want to anoint one of your sons to be king. I got to tell you, if I'm Jesse, I'm I'm like... One of my boys going to be king. You know, I'm going to be pretty, I'm going to be pretty excited about that. So he brings them all his sons. He's like, man, one of these boys are going to rule all of this. It's going to be really exciting. And so he brings one by one by one. And then Samuel says, that's not it. Do you have any more sons? Jesse didn't even bring David to the table. 
He was so ashamed of his own son because he was a shepherd, somebody who was thought to be unclean. When Samuel asked if you have any more, he said, well, there's, there's David. He's a shepherd. Because that's what he thought of his son. Why would I bring my son who's unclean? Why would I bring my son who's considered lazy? Why would I bring my final son who is just not going to amount to much? But God saw something different on David. God had a reality for David that man did not see. So when he came to Samuel, Samuel anointed his head. And from that moment on, David was able to partner with the reality of heaven. Because see, in that moment, even when he was anointed, the world was calling him a shepherd. The world was saying that he was last, that he wasn't good enough. The world was saying he is not going to succeed. He is not going to amount to much. He's going to be lazy. But when God said, it's that one, and Samuel anointed, it's because God saw a man who would slay a lion, who would slay a bear, who would kill giants, who would conquer entire nations, and who would rebuild a temple for the king of kings. That's the reality that he partnered with. So today, that is my heart. My heart is that we can take off this mindset of fear, that we can take off this mindset, this hat that says that there's so much going wrong in my life, there's no way I can figure it out. There's finances that are coming at you. There's bills that there's no way you can pay. There's relationships in your life that are so broken that there's no way they're going to be mended. You've had a sickness. You've had something in your life that has just been wrong for so long. There is no way that can get taken care of. But let me tell you today, that is what the world wants you to believe is your reality. That's what fear and the enemy wants you to believe is your reality. You see, because heaven's reality says that there is n- that our God is a God who has cattle on a thousand hills. Our God is a God that says that your relationships will be restored. Our God is a God that said there is nothing that he can't heal. That is the worship hat. If we get this on, if we get this mindset of, God, I know it's going to cost me something, but I know that your reality is so much more for me than what the world has.